Thanks, Peter. That's a very nice introduction. Um, for my part, I'm very, very thrilled to be reading at City Lights. Uh, this has always been sort of a, oh, the Vatican, you might say. The country priest comes to the Vatican to give a sermon. Yeah. But, uh, so yeah, it's, it's nice to be here. And uh, I thought I would pick something sort of political out of my book tonight. And this is from Mathematicians in Love. And uh, before I start reading, I should maybe explain a couple of things. There's, uh, there's two men, mathematicians, they're graduate students, they're called Bela and Paul, and they're friends, they're uh, getting, working on their PhD at a school sort of like Berkeley. This is in a, a parallel universe that's very similar to ours, but it's not exactly the same. They have a stupid and evil president called Joe Dokes. And we'll hear more about Joe Dokes today. And uh, they've, they've just been to some weird other dimensional journey, and they've managed to invent this thing called a go bubble. And in a way, a go bubble, it's sort of like what a, what a crystal ball would be if it worked really, really well. It's, you can look in the go bubble and you can see the future, or you can also see what's going on. They're sort of networked, so in a way they're sort of like the internet. And though unlike a crystal ball, they're, they're soft. They're actually these leathery bubbles, sort of almost like dinosaur eggs or something. And you can actually blow them sort of like soap bubbles and create them. And they're a form of uh, analog natural computation. And so the part I'm going to read you, first I'm going to read a part where Bela gets back. Uh, he's been in this other dimensional region and he meets up with this woman, uh, Cammy, who's sort of his girlfriend, and uh, Cam, they're in the car, and he doesn't quite know what's going on, and this, he sort of has jumped to a peril. He started in one universe, and now he's in one that's worse than the one he was in. And she turns on the radio, and she thinks he's stoned, because his story about what he's been doing doesn't make any sense to her. And then uh, he's going to get together with Paul, and they're going to work on getting some go bubbles together, and another thing to make it exciting, Bela is also, he's become the lead singer in a rock band called Washer Drop. And they're about to do a, a big concert at the, the stadium where the naming rights have been sold to the Heritagist Party, Joe Dokes' political party. And so it's called the Heritagist Stadium. So with that, I think I've told you enough to get started. Cammy fiddled with the radio. There's hardly any stations. Oh, here we go. This week, the 100% campaign has been gaining a surprising amount of traction, said a journalist's voice. When President Dokes proposed his 100% campaign in his State of the Union message last January, the notion was derided and then ignored. But somehow, a series of news developments over the last few days have brought the 100% campaign to the front burner and to full boil. I hate those freaking anti-humanity pigs so much, said Cammie, reaching for the radio. Leave it on, I said, touching her hand. I need this information so I can orient myself. Oh, this news is going to be perfect for you where your head's at right now, said Cammie. It's going to seem like you've ended up in a sick, weird, evil, alternate reality. Feel it, bud. That's the world we're living in. The show had switched to a tape of Joe Dokes at a recent rally. In these perilous times, our nation deserves a 100% heritageist government. We can afford no less. Now, I don't mean to question the patriotism and honesty of each and every member of the Common Ground Party, but if you buy a dozen eggs and one or two or three of them is rotten, common sense says you get your money back and a fresh dozen from the store. His voice was dry and humorless as a locust's chirp. What I'm saying is simple common sense, continued Dokes. Over and over, the elected and appointed officials of the Common Ground Party have let our people down in our Congress, in our courts, in our state legislatures, and in our governor's mansions. I'm proposing a 100% heritageist victory this fall. We won't settle for a mere majority. We've endured the sorry parades of Common Ground filibusters We've seen our dreams die in the power-brokered, special-interest, common-ground committees. We've tasted the lash of the willful, revisionist, common-ground courts. 
Dokes was a madman. But each time he stopped, his audience burst into wild applause. With complete control of the Congress and the state legislatures, we can use the constitutional power of impeachment to remove the activist common ground judges, rasped the mean little voice. This is what the balance of power stands for. With complete control of the Congress and of the state legislatures, we will propose and, with the people's help, pass a constitutional amendment to remove the outdated notions of presidential and congressional term limits. This is what a stable democracy deserves. The success of the 100% campaign will bring lasting homeland security, a wave of transformative legislation, and an end to the prideful tyranny of the courts. Our great nation deserves no less than the 100% freedom that a 100% heritage's victory will bring. The applause crested like a thunderous wave with the audience members cheering themselves hoarse. That was President Joe Dokes addressing a National Congress of Trade Unions, said the journalist's voice. Only a few months ago, the 100% campaign seemed dead on arrival, yet this week, President Dokes received a warm welcome from what had once been a common ground constituency. How is it that the 100% campaign has made such inroads in the mainstream this week? Part of the explanation seems to lie with the new heritage's publicity campaign being orchestrated by Congress's latest addition, the former high-tech executive and new Speaker of the House, Van Veter. Your pal, said Cammie, you should be ashamed. Okay. Now, I should mention Van Veter is a, he's a crazy physicist who's a, a friend of, kind of a friend of Bela and Paul and he helped them invent the go bubble. But then Veter got elected to Congress and he's turned the bubble over to the heritageists and they're using it to make predictions about how people react to things. And that's why they're able to manipulate the public so well. That's how they can do swift voting type things so well. Okay, but don't worry, we're gonna get even. I jumped in the squinty whale station wagon and drove to Paul's, bringing my go bubble in its case in the back of the car. I could have re-attempted asking it what Paul was up to, but I didn't. Whenever I was using my go bubble, the heritageist could spy on me. Paul greeted me with a smile. An odd smell wafted from his house, accompanied by a staticky hiss. Resting on the hall table was a go bubble showing Paul mowing the grass around his house while lustily singing the Star Spangled Banner. That's special Paul, said Paul. He lives in my go bubble. Wait a minute. He lives in my go bubble. Oh, he, special Paul lives in my go bubble to blind the pig's eyes. Come on in my kitchen. He led me through a foil-covered plastic curtain he'd rigged up across his kitchen door. It's like a big hushbrella in here, a temporary autonomous zone. He'd papered the ceiling, walls, window, and floor of his kitchen workroom with aluminum foil. The long sheets were tidily aligned, and he'd taped a plastic tarp over the foil on the floor so he didn't tear it when we walked around. An audio jammer sat on the counter, pulsing out its pseudo-random hiss, and the microwave oven was humming with its door open, filling the ether with electromagnetic interference. It smelled like the ocean in Paul's silver kitchen, and like a Chinatown butcher's shop with offal piled in the alley. I breathed through my mouth, not my nose. Pots of turbid, glistening fluid sat upon his stove. A laptop computer and a homemade bubble wand rested on Paul's kitchen table beside a steel mixing bowl filled with foamy, iridescent liquid. The counters in the floor were strewn with go bubbles. Way to go, Paul. You learned the recipe? Did Vitor tell it to you? He gave me the recipe right after you left the other day. How to make the bubble fluid and how to put his morphonic operating system onto it. And he gave me a download link for the operating system, source, and executable book. Remember that phone call he took in his car? And then he said, let it come down. He just found out that he's not going to be on the ticket 
with Dokes for the re-election after all. Dokes's uh, crony Ramirez said that if he was dropped, he'd tell the press the details about how Dokes had been gaming Tariq Qadri's terrorism to help the heritagists in the polls. Skyscraper bomber Qadri pops up to scare our voters whenever there's an election. And Dokes makes sure that nobody catches Qadri. Van actually gave me an access code for this secret video that shows Dokes' personal chopper airlifting Qadri out of the siege in Lilliputistan to his safe haven in Blefescustan. <laughs> the presidential seal on the helicopter is like covered with black paint, but you can see its outline anyway. Whoa, Van told you all that? He says he's had a change of heart. Says he hadn't realized just how rotten his grand old party had become. But I think mainly he's mad that he's out of the power loop. The guy's a politician. He wants us to bring down the administration so he can step in. Dig it. He's Speaker of the House, and according to the Constitution, that puts him third in line after the Prez and the Veep. So like I said, he gave me the recipe, and when Lulu left on Friday morning, I got busy. I was able to get some supplies from the Stanford Labs. Henry Nunez was right. We've entered a technological singularity. And just wait till we hand out 10,000 Go Bubbles at your stadium concert tonight. That's the plan, right? You can make 10,000, I said? You're my hero, dog. Tell me about your process. Looking more closely at the Go Bubbles scattered around the room, I noticed that they are all showing images of Paul doing wildly improbable things, with no two of the images the same. Why is every one of those Go Bubbles simulating you? They're testing the draft versions of Special Paul, said Paul, his gloom lifting. What is this with Special Paul? He's gifted, says Paul. He's so bright it's frightening. But he's intermittently chaotic. I keep Special Paul running on my personal go bubble out in the hall. He's like my screensaver. He screws up the web's Paul Bridge data set updates on a real-time basis, and that makes me go bubble unpredictable. I can carry a go-bubble around and use it to predict things, but with Special Paul as my go-bubble screensaver, the heritage just can't be using the bubble to track me. Could you do that for me, I said? I have my go-bubble in my car. I didn't bring it in because I'm so worried about the spying problem. Suffer the little go-bubbles to come unto me, said Paul, patting his laptop. I can make a special Bela screensaver for you, dog. So I fetched my Go Bubble from the car. When I took it out of its box, my Go Bubble was offline due to the wireless shielding in Paul's kitchen. It was showing wavy, vermi wavy vermilion grids with lemony horseshoes. Paul used his landline to get the National Security Agency's data set on me, built a special Bela simulation using his batshit cubic wave equation, and waved his magic bubble wand to put special Bela onto my Go Bubble. My Go Bubble displayed an image of me driving my car across the Bay Bridge towards Clown Town. In the middle of the bridge, I slammed on my brakes, causing a chain reaction pileup behind me. Ignoring that, my image began walking back towards San Francisco. And that was only scene one. Over and over, the image wavered and displayed fresh notions of what the absurd special Bela might do. He was, successively, smearing brown shoe polish on his car masturbating over an anatomy book in the Stanford Library, eating a monogrub triple burger, building a campfire out of dynamite sticks, shopping for an SUV, <laughs> and doing push-ups on a floor covered with shattered bottles. Special Bela, said Paul. Keep him near you always, my son. But right now, park him in the living room. From now on, you can use your go bubble without the heritage just tracking you. Whenever it has a spare moment, your go bubble will be running special Bela to ruin everyone's predictions about me, about you. Paul produced a gas-powered leaf blower from beneath the kitchen table. Wired copper bubble wands were taped to the nozzle, fed by plastic tubes snaking back around the engine to a plastic ga gas can filled with bubble goo. 
Three more full cans were under the table. The craziest mathematician of them all, I said admiringly. You're a monster. We've got some empty seats up here if you want to come up and sit down. My motorized, my motorized multi-wand bubble blower can pump out 10,000 bubbles in under five minutes. I'm bringing it to your concert tonight. Lulu's coming with me. Power to the people, I said, handing him two tickets and crew passes. Which reminds me, I've got to head up to Heritage's Park for our sound check with Anti-Crystal. They're opening for a Polish heavy metal band called Anti-Crystal. His band is called Water Drop. We made some plans for what to do after the concert, and then I was back in my squinty whale station wagon with Special Bela busy on the go bubble next to me on the passenger seat. Special Bela was canvassing door to door for the heritageist party. I had it in my mind that we should be playing my new song, 100% Asshole, when we released the bubbles at the concert's end. So at the sound check, I talked up the song to Anticrystal, that is, to Vaclav Smorinsky, Jutta Shrek, guitarist, guitarist Stanislaw Mostowski, and the drummer, Abdul Mohammed. Being near the Anticrystal members felt like mingling with gods. Each of them had the indestructible aura of a platonic archetype. I hardly knew which of them to stare at. Seeing Waklaw in the flesh, glowing and twinkling, any thought of my being jealous about him sleeping with my girlfriend Cammy evaporated. This guy was way out of my league. Anticrystal was an astronomically bigger name than Washerdrop. Even so, I kept pitching the notion of them playing our new song until What the Hay and Opanawaksi, that's Polish for be cool, Wachla, Jutta, Stanislaw, and Abdul said yes. They were loose enough to think it would be fun, a fun goof to surprise their fans by a two-band encore jam with the Washer Drop newbies. It helped that Jutta had become obsessed with Cammy and with our song Oil Pig, which was why we'd been asked to open for them. And that, by now, Wachla had a thing for Cammy. Yuta was flirting with me too, I think, but I kept my distance. She was pretty formidable with her mask-like expression, mirror-reflecting full-eye contact lenses and thigh-high silver leather boots, even though she was laughing and smoking pot and goosing people with the tip of her bass guitar. I could hardly wait for dark, and finally it came. The concert was everything we'd hoped for. Washerdrop played the first set. It was amazing to perform at such a big venue. According to the roadies, we had a gate of 30,000 souls in those towering stands. In the audience near the stage lurked Paul and Lulu with the tanks of bubble goo and the bubble machine, temporarily idle. I was glad to see them securely stationed in the midst of Pete and his draggy posse. The sociopathic prescription John, manic Jeremiah, hypervigilant lizard girl, and the nihilistic wrong wave Jose, with his pompadour in his grommeted earlobes. I was a little concerned that Sandoval might show up to execute a hit on us, although so far he was nowhere to be seen. Thanks to the massive anti-crystal sound system, our music overflowed the huge outdoor space. It was mind-boggling how one little flick of my guitar pick could stir so vast a volume. Literally hundreds of tons of air were undulating with the motions of my fingers. And to sing a phrase and have 30,000 voices call it back at you? Talk about positive feedback. This beat the hell out of publishing a math paper. I felt merged into the public hive mind like never before. And when the giant-fueled spaceship that was anti-crystal came on stage, we saw what it really meant to work a crowd. Vaclaw was an amazing frontman, wildly charismatic and lithe as a flickering flame, his voice smoothly rocketing up past the heavy metal, metal falsetto register into the operatic zone, his face a Punch and Judy show of conflicting emotions. 
Yuta Shrek was a cartoon superheroine come to life, a jolly, powerful robot, and not too high at all tonight. The guitarist Stanislaw Mostowski was a hyperactive maniac, splitting his notes in two and then splitting them again, his mouth wide open, stomping around the stage in a spraddle-legged crouch. Abdul Muhammad was shamanic and even magical. Amidst his most explosive fireworks of sound, his arms were made somehow languid, floating above his drum kit like kelp stems in surf, his drumsticks always where they needed to be calm at the heart of the maelstrom. As Antichrystal ended their set with Crying Chainsaw Clown, Paul started up his bubble machine, its leaf blower roar barely audible over the rhythmic chanting of the crowd. The bay breeze began sweeping great drifts of the go-bubbles across the crowd. Paul had programmed his electric wand to load this batch with screensavers, showing real-time predictions of things that would happen if the heritagists met with success in November. Vaclav beckoned to wash a drop. We are waiting at the rear of the stage. We stepped into the light and plugged in. Amelie had broken out in the audience near the stage. Security guards were trying to force their way into the crowd to get at Paul and his motorized bubble blower, but a bunch of dregs were holding back the guards, and Wrong Wave Jose was leaning across to smack the guards' heads with Pete's pool cue. We've got a 100% problem in this country, I yelled into the mic, my voice booming back at me. See your future in the bubbles. See what the heritages want with their 100% campaign. And thank you, thank you, thank you, Anti-Crystal, for letting us play this song. Joe Dokes is a 100% asshole. I swung my arms down like a conductor, and the bands dug in, Kjen and Vaklov screaming the lyrics with a classic drag metal mix of joy and defiance. It was a wild ride. Naz and Abdul were pounding the drums in a goose-stepper's march. Kami and Yuta were bubbling up fat, sarcastic bass notes. Stanislaw was playing a wallpaper of paisley shapes, and I was stabbing rusty triangular knives of ostinato guitar feedback into Kjan's stark text. He's a 100% jerk. Never had to work. He's 100% war. Our friends are dying for. He's 100% pig. Why let him be so big? He's 100% hate. Stop him now. It's late. We all had mics, and we came in together on the chorus with the crowd pumping their fists and roaring the words along with us over and over again. Vaclav's hugely amplified voice soaring above it all, barking at the refrain with a quirky passion that made each repetition new. 100% asshole! 100% asshole! 100% asshole! Promoters cut the power to our amps after perhaps the 30th repetition of our chorus, <laughs> but they were way too late. We'd gotten over. And yes, I know the lyrics look crude on the printed page, but forget not the transformative power of rock and roll. Imagine, if you will, 30,000 people screaming these words at once, and imagine 10,000 go-bubbles floating among them with each bubble showing a simulated moment of the projected 100% heritageist administration. Truculent Joe Dokes announcing another war in the service of big business. Police attacking poor people with clubs. Industrial pipelines pouring poisons into rivers. American tanks raising mosques and minarets. Hard guy Frank Ramirez telling FBI agents to shut up. Another skyscraper collapsing from a terrorist bomb. Peevish dokes and his marshmallow family hobnobbing with glittering billionaires, a fresh-faced American soldier dying, a cancer-stricken old woman staring into an empty cupboard, a child in a nightgown begging outside a factory, heavy rain washing away the soil of a clear-cut forest, dokes testily signing another tax cut for the rich, 100% asshole. Backstage, we were filled with a sense of imminent revolution. Cammy was hanging tight with, Ab with Vaclaw. Kjen was flirting with Stanislaw, and Abdul was playing with Naz's drum vest. A dauntingly merry Yuta Shrek gave me a big kiss and rubbed my face against her pumped-up tits. But I was worried about the heritages. 
Even if we'd struck a decisive blow against their empire, they still had time to gun me down. Paul and I were planning to lie low in San Ho. <laughs> Quickly, I disguised myself as an anti-crystal fan. I rubbed some of Yuta's pale makeup on my face, squirted my hair with Abdul's green hair gel, and painted on Kajen's black lipstick and dark eyeshadow. To complete the look, I pulled on a black XXL anti-crystal concert t-shirt showing a busty devil girl playing a crystalline guitar in front of three empty crosses and an atomic mushroom cloud. And then I melted into the night with special Bela in my pants pocket, jamming all predictions of my next move. So uh, let's do questions for about half an hour. I'll kick it off. Um, last week we had a room full of uh, gamers, uh -huh. and I was really struck. I don't play games. Uh -huh. Really struck by just how into that reality they were. Suddenly, it struck me because I was earlier in the day. I'd read an article about uh, in Harper's about this new um, kind of robot army that uh, mm -hmm. we're going to be deploying. Actually, we've already deployed it. It's just there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, wow, you know, there seems to be this like really thin veil between this reality and something that's about to happen. And you know, I'm wondering, you know. Since you really write about the present, I've always considered you to, to mm -hmm. really write about the present, not so much the future. Yes. What are your thoughts about that? Okay, so you're you're kind of asking me that like there's this like gamers are into virtual reality and the military is trying to make the wars into sort of virtual reality that, that's being played by the robots and uh, it is I think I have some friends who work in the game business. I used to actually teach game programming at San Jose State, that was my day job for many years, being a computer science professor. And uh, I used to teach courses on, on how to program video games. And it's, uh, in a way, pr programming them is more exciting than playing them. Uh, because then you get to, you have all the controls, you know. But uh, it, it seems to me, I have a feeling that, it seems to me it's like a great new art form that it's still our great new medium that still hasn't really found the art. It's sort of like when they invented movies. It maybe took a little while until they made what, what people would consider to be works of art in the medium. And uh, it's, it's particularly hard to do that in the medium of video games. Um, the medium is so brittle, it's very difficult to make a, a relatively complicated game. And it's almost like you, if you get a lot of people involved, then there's a lot of money, and then it's run by the suits, you know, and, and it's, uh, it's hard to do something. But you can actually make small games. Uh, but somehow, I, I don't know, maybe there's something about the, the format. I, I don't know why it is, but I still haven't seen what I would consider really great art in a, in a video game. But it seems like it could happen. Uh, the, the other issue of the, the military and virtual reality uh, is certainly computers are used for a lot of evil purposes. Actually, just last week I had some guy f from the government, from the Navy or something, emailing me and asking me if I would come meet with them to help them plan uh, cyber cyber warfare. And then he, he sent me a link to their website, and the link didn't work. <laughs> and uh, I was also feeling paranoid because I've just written, published this thing that I was just reading to you. <laughs> so I, I'm not going to get together with those guys. Uh, but uh, I don't know. It's, uh, well, we're always in a Bronze Age, aren't we? I mean, things are always getting worse and going downhill. And, but maybe there's some upside to it. Maybe somehow. There was this original dream of the computers and the internet sort of bringing light and freedom to everybody. And there is that side of it, too. There's a bright side to the force as well. I heard something on the radio today about 
little airplanes that are the size of bumblebees, and I couldn't hear what they said about it. Do you know anything about that? <laughs> what that might, can you imagine something? I, I've so, thought about those a lot, actually. <laughs> <laughs> That's almost by way of being in a... The, the question was, he said he heard on the radio about uh, small airplanes uh, the size of birds or bumble, bumblebees. That's, that's beautiful. Yeah, in several of my books, going back to, I think, freeware, or maybe it was realware, I've had this idea of there being devices, I call them dragonfly cameras, that would be the size of a dragonfly. It seems like if you were going to make a really small flying machine, it'd be better if it had insect-style wings. Because if it has like fixed airplane wings, uh, it's pretty. If you lose control of a thing like, if an airplane like gets into a bad angle, you can't recover. But if you're like a dragonfly, even if like you're flipped over, you can always, you know, you can kind of get it back together. It's like being in a kayak instead of being in a, a steamboat or something. But uh, and certainly, I think we'll. You'll be seeing those things a lot. <laughs> They'll be seeing you. Uh, in, uh, in about 20 years, I think. And uh, in a way, at some point, people say, well, what about our privacy? And then at some point, you think it's like, maybe privacy doesn't matter that much. I mean, uh, so what? I mean, the thing is, if everybody loses their privacy, I mean, everybody has sex, everybody, everybody goes to the bathroom, you know, most people take drugs now and then. I mean, you see everybody doing all that, and, and then, then what, you know? I don't know. Maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe privacy will go away. Uh, but uh, I'd like to have this, I have this whole image, I have this, worked at this whole scenario of uh, monetizing the dragonfly cameras. It's, you'll have like a, a rack of them, like on Coit Tower, like where people can't reach them. There'll be, you know, a hundred of them, and you can like come in on the internet and go to San, the San Francisco Dragonfly site, and you rent one of these little suckers, and so it's like for two hours he's yours, you know. He breaks flew of Coit Tower and starts flying around, and you can go and you can look at everything, you know. Go to the alley behind the Will Call Bar and see what's happening, you know, or you can uh, go follow uh, Sharon Stone around, you know, or you know, whatever you want to do. You could go, you could say, well, I'm interested in buying a condo in this area, and what kind of area is it really like? Because you see pictures on the web, you, you can never really tell what, what a place looks like. So it would be nice, <laughs> if you're a tourist, like you're planning a trip, it'd be really great to be able to like fly around a place. And it's not like the virtual fly-through that the realtor has set up for you, which somehow never manages to look out the window, you know, that looks at the dumpster in the parking lot. You know. But uh, you'd be... So I, I think that would be a very cool thing. Actually, I wrote about them a lot. I wrote a book of futurology called Saucer Wisdom that has a lot about them in there. But, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm interested. I, I'm happy to hear that they're coming along so well. Uh, Professor Roger, um, yeah. kind of going back to some of your earlier work on software, hardware, and such, um, I was always really interested. One of the things that attracted me those books, and quite frankly, to your work in general, um, was this idea of, um, and it's not necessarily, I suppose, your idea, but your spin on it, this idea of the white light, or like when you say Cobb um, was no longer in a body, mm -hmm. his software had um, actually was actually being stored um, by the boppers. And I wonder if you, um, if you had any further thoughts about, well, what that experience was. You described it as he felt it was like being in heaven. Yes. Um, was it timeless? I, I'm just curious. Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear more. Okay, yeah, so you're asking me about, I sounds right about enlightenment experiences or the white light and being in heaven. Um, that's, yeah, that's something I've always been intrigued by mysticism ever since I first heard about it. And uh, now and then, but never for very long, you know, in my life I've had sensations of seeing, you know, the, the white light or maybe hearing God talking to me, saying something like, I love you. And I'll get this feeling also if I'm out in, in nature. Now and then, you can get it, so you really just feel like you're part of it. You're one. You're merged into the universe. And uh, it doesn't really matter where you start and where you end. And you're part of the, the overarching cosmos. And that's... Uh, I've been... 
when I was about 13, I became very frightened of dying. Somehow, I don't know, it was, it just struck me that I was going to die, and that, that bothered me. I thought about it a lot. And uh, so part of one reason that's why I turned to philosophy fairly young, and that's mysticism is one way out. The idea that, uh, well, if you have the idea of there being, that we're sort of shattered little pieces of the one, and when you die, it's like the dew drop sliding off the blade of grass into the sea, and you, know, you merge back in. And then uh, it would be interesting to write science fiction about heaven. In a way, I tried to do that in white light, because there I had a guy go, and he's, he's where the dead people are. And uh, not too much has been done with that. Um, Though, in a way, Virgil, I mean, not Virgil, excuse me, Dante, Virgil was his guide. I mean, the Paradiso, it's a whole riff about, you know, the afterlife, which is now, I mean, in a way, it's, it's science fiction, though without the science. Uh, so, and these days, I still, uh, I like to do yoga, and... Uh, if you're focusing on stretching your muscles and breathing, it's a way to stop thinking. 90% of the time when I'm thinking, I'm either worrying about things that I have to do or things that I think I should get that I'm not probably not going to get or also feeling bad about things that happened to me in the past that I did incorrectly or feeling sad about the fact that I'm getting older and I'm going to die. Uh, I'm closer to death than I used to be. Ninety percent of, of the thoughts that I have are, you know, not sort of not that pleasant to have. I mean, they're useful. I, you know, it, obviously I have to sort of sweat it a lot, or I wouldn't write all these books. But uh, it's nice when you can turn your brain off, and uh, I think yoga is pretty useful for that. Or even just sitting, sitting in the backyard in the sun. Uh, my happiest mornings is when I take a, when I'm working on a book like right now. This is this is my next novel at this point. <laughs> and, uh, so I'll, I'll take this scrap of paper out in the yard and then I'll lie there on uh, my yoga mat in the sun and I'll look at it and just think about it and I like to look up at the branches. Um, I wrote a book a couple of years ago called The Life Box, The Seashell, and The Soul. And that's pretty much, that summarizes all my thoughts about philosophy at this point in my life. And my feeling now is that nature itself is very intricate and is doing very gnarly, interesting computations. If you look at something like a, the motions of a handkerchief, you actually can't simulate these uh, on, a, on a computer. I mean, some, you'll see things like fabric, but it moves in dull, boring ways. It's not, the computation is much more complicated in the real world. And I have a real kind of appreciation for how rich and intricate nature is. So those are some of the thoughts that come to me along the lines you suggested. Um, something I was thinking about, um, I was wondering if your Joe Dokes has, do you deal with something like he might have um, Connections in the in the disembodied realm, you might have spirit uh, that whatever his cabal is is involved with, that they, they might have these extraterrestrial uh, dimensions to them. Do you deal with that sort of thing? At all? Uh, well, that's one way to be evil. But in this particular book, Joe Dokes is no, he's more just like a. Well, he's the kind of guy where he's a draft dodger and you could run a, a guy with a Medal of Honor against him and he would somehow manage to wipe the floor with the other guy's Medal of Honor. I mean, <laughs> that's the kind of guy Joe Dokes is. We know guys like that. <laughs> but, uh, actually, the, um, I just wrote a, no a novel after this called Post Singular and that also has an evil president. I'm pumping them out. We've still got two more years. Uh, and that evil president is called, uh, oh, Dick Dibbs. Yeah, Dick Dibbs. And uh, Dick Dibbs does do something a little bit like what you mentioned. He agrees with some people that 
there's uh, that Earth should be chewed up into computer chips and basically make this huge cloud of nothing but computer chips that'll surround the sun in what they call a Dyson sphere, and it'll be soaking up the solar power. But it's okay, folks, because those chips are going to be simulating our Gaia, our Earth. We'll all be living in virtual reality. It'll be virtual Earth 2.0. And, uh, of course, unless you're a member of the Heritage's Party, you're not going to be simulated <laughs> in the virtual Earth. So that's sort of a falling in with the aliens. Um, actually, my editor was telling me to lighten it up. Because this book, he said, look, you know, you can't keep this up forever. So I think in this book, there's actually a cousin of, of Dick Dibbs. I'm happy to tell you that at the end of the first book, Dick Dibbs was executed by lethal injection. <laughs> Had a, a bit of a loss in the polls there. But uh, then his cousin, Dick Two Dibbs, that's T-O-O, -O, that's his middle name, Dick Two Dibbs got elected. But I'm going to make him actually for a change. He's going to be a fairly reasonable guy. Because we're about to be invaded by two alien races, the Kang and the Roll. So uh, it's, it's going to be a pretty serious situation. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned, I think, in a book called uh, The Fourfold um, about, I guess it would be uh, 3D cross sections of a four dimensional geometric object. And that some people were able to train themselves to see it, much like people picking up one of those magic picture books. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, yeah, the question is about learning to see the fourth dimension. And there was a, there was a mathematician called Charles Howard Hinton uh, in the 1880s. And uh, he actually taught at the Cheltenham Ladies College. And uh, he made a set of cardboard cubes that he thought would help people to visualize the fourth dimension. And actually now we have, uh, if you search the web, uh, you can find some pretty good computer simulations that show tumbling four-dimensional objects. Yeah. Well, in some sense, the computer screen is glass, and in principle, what's on the other side of it could be four-dimensional space. But it's projected onto the... When you see something normally on the screen, it's projected once from three dimensions onto two. But to see a four-dimensional thing, it's actually projected twice from four to three and three to two. But um, So you can see them, and, and you can look at them and uh, try to wrap your mind around it. And uh, in principle, yes, our brain is three-dimensional, but there's, there's no reason you can't learn... It's just a matter of focus and thinking about a lot. And, uh, but it's hard because so much of our visual processing, it's not something that you learn. It's something that you're born with. You know, that's our wetware knows it. Evolution. When a, sometimes people say that you could build, you know, if you had a computer with a, a petabyte, petaflop computer, it would be as smart as a person. But the catch is it wouldn't have the, the software. And we're born with installed on us this stuff that, this structure in our brain that has, has evolved over the millennia. So we're able to see, we're able to recognize objects, we're able to, to orient ourselves in space. And these are things that are all very hard for a, a robot. Now the reason I mention that is because over the years I've spent a, quite a bit of time trying to visualize the fourth dimension. And it's very difficult. And I think it's because, uh, well first of all, you know, I, I'm not... I didn't evolve to live in the fourth dimension. And secondly, I don't get to have a lot of experience in the fourth dimension of you know moving around there and doing stuff. Um, I wrote a novel called Spaceland uh, that is about some people that, that go into the fourth dimension. And I was thinking about it a lot then. It's, it's fun to think about. And I think, I think people could get better at it. And maybe in 100 years, people will be better at visualizing it than they are now. It's an interesting challenge. Well, okay, is time the fourth dimension? Sometimes people, uh, time is a higher dimension. Look at it this way. It's like you don't really say, I mean, which is the third dimension? Is it 
length or is it height? So it's like our space is three-dimensional, fine. Space-time is four-dimensional, okay. But when mathematicians and science fiction writers talk about the fourth dimension, they're usually thinking in terms of what would it be like to have a, another dimension. So you could even call it the fifth dimension if you like, if you want to say time is the fourth. So another dimension of space. So a way in which you could like disappear from this room without going through any of the walls. You would just sort of hop up or clup, as we like to say. So there's a... Yeah, so it's, it's not quite true that, in a way, time is the fourth dimension, but in this kind of discussion, it, we're thinking about a spatial dimension. That's something else entirely. Excuse me? Are those fireworks? It's from Chinatown. Is it New Year's? Cool. Once when we first got here, we were walking around Chinatown, and there are these guys lowering down this string with, oh, there must have been 10,000 firecrackers on it, and they're all going off. It was, it was really cool. We're like, can we buy these? You know, they're like, no. <laughs> Not from us. Yeah. Gee, that sounds great. But, um, yeah, I don't have too much more to say about space and time. There's a, I did write a book called The Fourth Dimension that has a popular book that has a lot of stuff about it in there. But uh, you could have a four-dimensional space plus then have time on top of that. And we just haven't noticed the other dimension of space yet. It's not impossible. have over the years written from a remarkably diverse set of first persons. How do you, how do you, how do you get your, your head into the space of an ant, say, or any of this pantheon of, of, of weird beings uh -huh. that you have um, existing in your books? Well, that's an interesting question. How do I get my head into the various weird kinds of creatures that are in my books? Um, when I was first starting, I remember thinking it would be hard to, to write a robot. I mean, how do I know what a robot is like? And then I said, well, I'm just going to make it be like a person, but, you know, have it be a little bit different. And it's... The hard thing is learning how to write characters other than yourself. When I was younger, I would basically always write novels that were narrated in the first person by somebody who was just like me. And that was very easy to get my head into those characters. And now, as I've you know branched out a little, now I try to have other characters. And then it's uh, partly it's observing other people and listening to them and getting mental models of how they might behave. And then also being willing to, to have them surprise you, to not necessarily do what you expect them to. Um, right now I'm actually facing the kind of the hardest version of this thing yet, is I'm trying to write a book where all the objects are alive. So I'm thinking, I want to do a scene from the point of view of a rock, you know, like a stone. <laughs> But to have it be interesting in some way. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, it could be stones. The thing is, if you look at the atomic level, I mean, maybe a stone, like the atoms are all sort of vibrating. If you think they're all sort of like, you have, you know, a trillion springs that are like the atomic forces attaching them all. So it's really sort of resonating and jiggling. And there could be some computation going in there. But probably, I mean, the impression is that stones are pretty well satisfied doing what they're doing. <laughs> but I have this idea that they really enjoy being put into walls. <laughs> and that's sort of the, they feel good about that, you know? They're touching all the other stones and getting up high above the ground, you know, because usually for a stone to escape gravity at all. So I think, I think they're going to enjoy that. But then there's going to be one troublemaker that will, like, fuck the wall up, <laughs> make it fall down. Uh, yeah, I want to do this book where all the objects have become intelligent. Um, that's, that's actually, there's a philosophical tradition. There's two words for it. There's panpsychism and uh, 
the idea that it, the, everything has a psychic element to it. And you might think it means the notion of the oversoul, but that's not really what is meant by panpsychism. It's not meant that there's one great mind. It's meant that each object has a mind. The chair has a mind. The book has a mind. And there's a variant on this idea called hylozoism. And that's the idea that every object is alive. So being alive and having a mind are sort of the same, but they're not exactly the same. And so I'm going to call my, the book I'm working on now is called Hylozoic, because it's about the Hylozoic world. But uh, it's, it's always hard when you're starting a book. I showed you how much I've written, about three pages. And uh, so I've been doing a lot of avoiding <laughs> getting new glasses. And I, I put some new software on my blog, you know, and <laughs> just kind of waiting for the idea, waiting for the right idea. And sooner or later, the universe tends to, at least you get into a sort of a desperate state or concerned state where it almost feels like the universe is feeding you ideas and giving you things. Uh, on, on the way over, my wife and I were walking down Columbus, Columbus Street, Columbus Avenue, and there was a couple of guys in a cafe and they were like excitedly leaning over this marble tabletop and they were just pointing at this, this white marking. It was at, uh, at El Greco. And they're just, you know, it was a, a black tablecloth with some white markings in it. And they're just studying it and both running their fingers over it. It's like they're telling fortunes from that shape. Or Then I could imagine, you know, that the table was talking to them or that, that shape was telling them something. So, uh, but that was sort of like a gift to me from the universe saying, here's a tip, you know. So I'm, I'm looking around for tips these days about how everything can be alive. Yeah, maybe that's a good place to stop. Thanks.